Hey Logo Geeks, it's Ian Padgett here and this week on the podcast I'm joined by Jesse Reed to talk about Standards Manual and his time working with Michael Beirut at Pentagram. But before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to Logo Package Express, which is an extension for Adobe Illustrator that allows you to create a comprehensive kit of logo files in minutes. Just over a year ago, once a client had approved the logo I've designed for them, I would need to create all of these files manually. So files for web, for print, in full color, inverted, black, white, different lockups. It would take a while to create, sometimes more than an hour to do the uh, job properly. And from time to time, uh, being honest, I made mistakes. So it would take even longer. Then I met Michael Brunny Groth, who had at that time developed um, a basic version of Logo Package Express. And that just immediately changed my life, making a task that would take ages suddenly take minutes. At first, it just started out as a few actions and scripts, which already saved me time. Then it just got better and better. Uh, Michael is someone that really listens to people and is very keen to create the best possible product. So that's evolved into a full-on extension to allow it to be part of the Adobe Illustrator interface. It's recently had its biggest update since it was first released just over a year back. And, and now it has a Pantone first workflow. It allows you to customize the name of files and it has the ability to add padding around the logos. And uh, six months ago, th this was already an incredible product, but Michael's just made it so much better. If you're a logo designer, you need this. It, it rapidly speeds up the workflow of creating files. It removes the risk of error. And if you're not already providing a comprehensive kit of files like this, it will make you look so much more professional too. So if you do want to go and check out and purchase Logo Package Express, head to logogeek.uk forward slash extension. Now it's a one-off cost of $120 rather than a, a subscription. And Michael does give free updates. And uh, if you do use the promo code logogeek, you'll also get an extra 20 percent off. This is the type of thing that will pay for itself very quickly, just purely based on the amount of time it saves on each and every project. So if you're a logo designer, head to logogeek.uk forward slash extension and see how Logo Package Express will change your life like it did for me. For transparency, there is an affiliate link. So if you do purchase via that link, you'll be helping to support the ongoing production of the Logo Geek podcast at no extra cost to you. So this week on the podcast, I'm joined by Jesse Reed, who's one of the founders of the publisher Standards Manual, who worked to archive and preserve artifacts of design history to make them available for future generations. 
This has included a number of significant graphic standards manuals, such as the New York Transit Authority, NASA, and the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, but they've also released um, some other incredible books, such as Identity, which features the logos designed by Chemayev and guys Ma and Javi. That book is simply superb. Um, in fact, all of the books that they do are absolutely stunning, incredibly well made and high quality. So if you are a book collector like I am, they're, they're worth purchasing. And I haven't been paid or not sponsored to say this. I absolutely love what Jesse and um, his business partner has been doing with this. It's phenomenal. So I wanted to get him on to discover more about Standards Manual, how it started, what he's learned from documenting those Standards Manuals. But he's also been a designer under the legendary Michael Beirut at Pentagram. So I wanted to learn more about his experience at one of the world's most famous design agency. And on top of that, Jesse now runs his own design agency along with Hamish Smith. So I wanted to find out a little bit about that as well. So there's quite a lot in this podcast, uh, but let's get straight into this. Here is the interview with Jesse Reed. I actually found out about you through the work that you've been doing with Standards Manual. Uh, which is a company that you founded back in 2014. I've seen these manuals every time they come out. They are absolutely stunning. Um, I bought a couple myself. And hopefully, listeners, if they're not already aware of you, uh, they'll be excited to go and check out what you're doing. So would you mind sharing how did this company happen? Uh, because I, I love what you're doing and I, I'd love to know the uh, the story underneath it. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm never really sure if people are are sick of hearing this story um, or not yet. But if if you're if you haven't heard it um, already, uh, you know, the company was started really and truly by accident. Um, so I started the company with uh, my business partner Hamish Smythe, and we were both uh, associate partners and designers at Pentagram in New York City at the time. We were both working for Michael Beirut um, in that office. And uh, really, yeah, this this was a sort of a, a fluke um, occurrence where him and I and a group of other designers were down in the basement of Pentagram, which was the, the old building, if anyone, if anyone was lucky enough to... Uh, to go there in, in New York, it was 204 Fifth Avenue, and it was this amazing old bank building. Um, and in the basement, there was like the vault was still there. So you could walk in the vault and that's where our server room was. And it was a really cool basement, but it was like full of, of stuff because they'd been there for, you know, a couple decades at this point. And so we were looking for a, a tarp to put on top of a foosball table that was on the roof of our building because we'd had a party the night before and it was going to rain. And so we were looking for this tarp to cover it up. And we were you know, rummaging through uh, drawers and through in, you know, places to see, like, surely there's, there's something down there that we can use. 
And there were these old gym lockers that the partners uh, used to store, you know, their uh, belongings. Um, but I don't think they really use them that often. So we opened one of them up and on the very bottom of one of the lockers, sort of like peeking out from like really old like gym clothes and like newspapers, like almost like trash. I mean, not like real trash, but just like rubbish. We saw the corner of this red binder that was peeking out. And, I, you know, I sort of instantly knew what it was. You could sort of see a little bit of white type um, set in standard medium. And so we pulled it out and it was the uh, New York City Transit Authority graphic standards manual, the, the big red binder um, that is sort of the Bible of the, the New York City subway system uh, signage and, you know, designed by Massimo Vignelli and Bob Norda. So, you know, we can get into those details in a bit, but essentially we found that original binder and we took it upstairs um, to where we sat, all the designers, or, or, you know, uh, two of the teams uh, in the New York office sat on the first floor, um, Michael Beirut's and Emily Overman's. And so we took it upstairs and like, you know, sort of uh, <laughs> shouted what we had just found and we all like huddled around this amazing piece of history that none of us have have ever seen in person like never have we've never touched it i think you know a lot of us knew what it was but some of us didn't um uh and so yeah we spent the whole day sort of going page by page through this manual uh and sort of like shock and disbelief of, of what we were like holding in front of us and then word got around to pentagram and other people started coming down so it was a very exciting day um so that happened and then I think like very quickly, either like later that day or the next day, we were, you know, I think Hamish and I, um, and, you know, we're, we're friends and sort of we're like, you know, work on the same team. So we, we just casually said, oh, man, we should we should put this online somewhere so that other people can see it. And so him and I just naturally did it. Um, again, there was no plan, but he just said, yeah, I'll grab the camera let's go into a conference room and let's just photograph each page like high resolution. And then maybe we can make a website and put this up. And so uh, we, we just did that very quickly. Like I was on the floor under the table um, and then he was on top of the table with like a tripod that was like Jerry rigged to like go over the table. It was like a very uh, sketchy setup, but essentially I just turned every single page and he photographed it. And then another designer on our team at the time uh, sort of knew web development. And so he developed this very basic, uh, you know, website that essentially just had a grid of images. Um, and the only cool feature about it was that it had a magnification tool um, so that you could zoom into every page and read the text. And this was actually the piece of the manual that was so fascinating to us was the way that it was written. So the, 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 the words and like the, the sort of captions for each page were so meticulous and uh, authoritative. And, you know, this is written by Massimo Vignelli. So you're sort of imagining him writing this thing. And so that's what we wanted other people to see. It was just the way that this manual was written. And so we launched that website. Um, and that was in 2004, or I guess that was in 2013, we launched the website and it did end up getting quite a bit of traction. We got a quarter of a million unique visitors in the first week that we had launched it. Wow. But yeah, it, it was like, well, 
Um, and, you know, we just wanted to share it with like, you know, the other designers that we knew and we thought probably other people would be interested in it. So I think, you know, we, we put it on Twitter and then Michael Beirut, I think, retweeted it or just tweeted about it in general. And I think Stephen Heller also uh, tweeted about it. And so between like those two heavy hitters, um, it sort of went mini viral. I don't think it went like, you know, viral in the true sense of the word, but within in the in the design community, um, you know, it got a lot of traction. So we launched that website and, you know, got this response that was sort of unexpected, but we didn't really have any plans beyond that. So it was just like, cool. It's like, wow, that, you know, people other than us are, are uh, uh, appreciating what we had found. And so, you know, just to sort of end this part of the story and to fast track it a little bit, um, it wasn't until a year Plus later um, that we we sort of revisited the website and I think we, we mentioned it to a couple people and one of those people um, was uh, a woman named Alex Daly who would eventually become uh, Hamish's partner um, and so you know they weren't dating at the time but you know when they first met he he mentioned this this manual that we had found on the website and how it got all these hits. And how, you know, we loosely thought it would be really great if it was a, a book or, you know, if, or if, if it was republished or if it were sort of, re, you know, uh, reproduced in some way. But um, and so we mentioned that and she said, oh, that's a perfect project for Kickstarter because she has been doing a lot of work with crowdfunding and in that world. And so she mentioned Kickstarter and then at the same time, uh, the MTA was our client at Pentagram. and so. We just mentioned to them, hey, you know, we found the original Vignelli manual. Um, we thought it would be sort of a cool project just to republish it in some way. And we can do that through this thing called Kickstarter. So we explained that to them. And essentially, they gave us permission to republish the, you know, NYCTA um, manual for 30 days through Kickstarter and see what would happen. Um, and so the conclusion to you know this long introduction to the company um, is that we did launch that Kickstarter. And I think our goal was about $100,000, which would allow us to print a thousand books. And at the end of the campaign, um, we essentially pre-sold uh, about 7,000 uh, books um, and raising, I think it was around $800,000. So it was like 700% more than we were anticipating. And this um, sort of began the uh, the journey of, of Standards Manual. Mm -hmm. It's an absolutely incredible story. It's almost like finding a, a piece of treasure, but being able to uh, share that treasure with everyone. I know when I, I, I do remember when uh, that was on Kickstarter and uh, everyone was talking about it. And and I've seen almost there being a trend since then of uh, resurrecting the uh, manuals. And uh, uh, obviously they they become incredibly popular because now you have a whole company built out off the back of that, what you found at that time, which, which is, is, is incredible in itself. Yeah. Um, how do you go into like recreating one of those manuals? Is it just simply a case of like you said going through taking photos of them or is there a more in-depth process that you're running through to to recreate those books yeah um so you know one thing to clarify which which we, we've always tried to make very clear um is that 
we're not actually touching the design of the manuals. Um, so we're not editing, we're not uh, adding or really anything um, to the the original content of the manual. So, you know, just with the, the NYCTA manual, for example, um, we, we, you know, we, we stepped up from photographs and went to scanning. So every page is scanned. Um, I think that one, you know, was still at, I think, 2,400 DPI, every single page, um, you know, extremely high resolution. And then we made a very intentional, uh, you know, decision to print the pages of the book um, and leaving that paper, you know, included. So we, we didn't um, delete or remove the actual paper background, if you will, of the original pages of the manual. So, you know, if, if you've seen the our reissue, you can see the yellowing of the page and sort of the texture and even like a very subtle shadow, um, you know, through the, the, the punch holes where um, the binder went through. And uh, we just wanted this to be an archival document. We weren't looking at it, um, again, to uh, suggest any changes or to modify anything about the design. It was simply to archive it and then distribute uh, the manual as really an educational tool. That was sort of our, our, our focus and our goal from the very beginning is that we found this object that most people don't have access to and particularly thinking about students and younger designers and, you know, even working professionals, but we just wanted to make this accessible. And so we, um, yeah. Uh, and you know, so we, we scanned every page, but the, the thing with the original binder or the original manual is that, um, it's, it's rather large and doesn't fit on any, uh, flatbed scanner. And so, uh, we had to scan each page twice and then stitch them together. Um, and I, uh, you know, I actually give me one second because I have the manual right in front of me. I can get like the exact page counts on, on how. Yeah, sure. Um, they were. <laughs> so the original manual is 364 pages. So we had to scan each of those pages twice and then stitch them wow. <laughs> together. So it was a very, you know, labor intensive efforts. And we had one of our, um, I think she was an intern at the time. Uh, Sonsoles uh, at Pentagram. She, you know, helped us uh, scan every page and then we stitched them together. And then on top of that, um, in the uh, original manual, there are um, 13 spot colors um, that were used for the the different train lines within the system and, you know, that were printed on, on the map that I think most people are familiar with. And so we extracted and separated those colors out from the pages um, so that they were spot colors and then we printed those spot colors that they were, they were accurately represented from the original manual. So that's a process that also took a bit of time and that this, this, you know, uh, wasn't printed just straight CMYK. Um, so those are sort of like the highlights of the, the production process on, on how we, um, we created it. And then, you know, obviously it's, it's not in a binder, so it's now in a hard case bound uh, book and it's um, you know wrapped in cloth and silk screen, so it wasn't meant to be a reproduction. It really is a reissue of the original manual. So we, we tried to make those things um, as clear as we could. Mm -hmm. I I absolutely love them, and I, I think that extra thing that you did, like actually leaving the paper in there, um, I found that a really nice touch because it. it uh, 
you know how you found that piece of treasure originally you know down in the basement (laughs) i'm gonna call it treasure because it is um all the little stains on the paper i i think that's all part of it that is aged it's been used and so on and i think it's nice to see that so it is almost as close as possible looking through the thing that that you actually found at that time um so i i do appreciate that extra effort and all the extra details that you've done like um using all the uh, different uh, spot colors uh, i wasn't aware that you went into that detail so it really goes to show you know the the attention to detail that you have gone to uh, recreate them and um based on my experience of what you've done every time i get a piece it's immaculate quality um you really do strive to create the very best quality uh, product so um you know thank you as a fellow graphic designer for going to that extra length because it just makes it such a nice piece that you you want to collect you want to own and it's uh pleasant to look through but obviously it's educational as well that you can um reference back through that material as well yeah thank you you're very welcome um okay so you've got to this point now where you have recreated quite a few different manuals and you've gone through each one in quite deep in a lot of detail you would have looked through all of them very carefully especially if you are having to scan each page in some cases twice Mm. have you learned any lessons from those manuals by studying them in in the way that you have yeah you know we've done asked this question before and i feel like each time i sort of like have a slightly different answer because you know even when you're spending time with it in you know, uh, for the first time, you miss things that you uh, see uh, or, or that, that you don't see until you've sort of given it a break, and then you look at it a year later and mm-hmm. something more. So, um, you know, I would say what we, or I guess you know, what I have um, observed uh, as the most interesting sort of part about these these older manuals is that a lot of it really is still the same today and that these um i sort i call them legacy manuals and i don't know where i got that mm-hmm. term i sort of you know and they're certainly not the very first ever you know brand guidelines that were designed the ones that we have republished there's many many amazing examples and you know unit editions um the publisher uh, in the uk um you know they they published uh, two volumes of uh, of, of manual books. And so those, you know, show a much wider variety of them, but really they were very early, um, examples of, of, of brand guidelines and they weren't called that. I mean, sort of like the, the, the vocabulary and the nomenclature now we call them brand guidelines, but they were, you know, standards manuals back then. And, you know, everything being done, uh, in a very analog way um, and the systems that they had to think about before computers were involved. So none of these manuals came from a computer, none of them, Uh, of all the ones that we have republished. And I would say the large majority of the ones that are in the unit edition books. And so you really have a sense of appreciation for the thought and care and and pre-consideration for the design systems that these designers were creating. Um, they, they didn't rely on technology or computers to sort of generate, um, you know, uh, the outcome. They really had to meticulously think about every circumstance and application, whether 
it was, you know, a business card or a letterhead or the side of a space shuttle, you know, for, for in, in NASA's case. Um, and everything is just detailed um, to, you know, the smallest uh, nuance and to the smallest degree. And even, you know, the what's inside of the manuals, all of it was drawn by hand. All of the applications, all of the typesetting was either, you know, uh, done with photo typesetting um, or, or, or other sort of early analog processes. So you just really have a sense of appreciation for... Um, thinking through a design system and not letting the tools or technology drive the design. Really, these are so highly uh, conceptual and sort of driven by um, uh, sort of, you know, a, a really big, simple idea that um, everything is, is sort of like in, its, in the place that it should be. And then the way that it's articulated to continue that system is so direct and straightforward. There are no questions sort of left unanswered. So again, going back to that writing component of the manuals, the way in which they're articulated are so clear that really anybody could pick up any one of these guidelines and recreate the design system, even if you're a designer right out of out of out of school, um, even a very you know early designer. So I think that's what I appreciate the most, and that's what we carry forward um, in our own design practice. Um, you know, Hamish and I run a design uh, office called Order, and we do client work, and we create these brand guidelines for our clients ourselves. And definitely, the way in which they're structured and um, you know. Uh, written and authored. Um, I think we, we pick up a lot of that from the early manuals. And then the only difference is that technology has changed and the applications have changed. So now we're dealing with, you know, a lot more web and digital applications rather than printed materials. And that's okay. But the principles of a design system and the way in which it expands across an organization or a company or, you know, anything um, those are really very similar uh, to what you find in those early manuals. Mm -hmm. You know, that really doesn't surprise me at all, because if I was going to create um, a standards manual, I would reference what's been done previously. And you always look to the best that, that's been created and they they just work. I, I've got both the uh, unit editions manuals that got put together yeah. that are fantastic and it's even though you know the applications have changed like you said it's such a useful reference to create something uh, new so it, it really doesn't make sense to reinvent the wheel because what was created then is still very much relevant here today so it's it's not surprising yeah and you know one uh, sort of thing that are one sort of aspect of, of brand guidelines or standards manuals that now we're seeing is that, you know, they, they sort of came from uh, printed sheets in ring binders. And then, you know, in the nineties, they moved to PDFs and, you know, through the early two thousands. And now, um, you know, it's no secret or it's not really a new technology, but now you have brand guidelines that live, on the web. And so companies and organizations have a website that acts as their brand guidelines. And it's amazing because, you know, in that uh, medium, you can go there and everything is always up to date. There's no versioning of PDFs or files. And then you can download those assets immediately. They're always, you know, direct and up to date. So and that's what we've started to do with a lot of our clients is that we're developing 
web guidelines and you know, website brand guidelines, I mean, mm-hmm. um, as, a, as an alternative to PDFs um, that are really outdated at this point. So it's, it's really, you know, uh, it's fascinating to see the sort of arc of, of this particular subset of, of design, which is part of the reason why I think it was as popular as it was. Um, I think a lot of non-designers and even designers that, you know, maybe young designers or students weren't that familiar with the, uh, sort of, um, this sort of, you know, just the object of a brand guidelines or sort of the deliverable of a brand guidelines. I mean, a lot of people didn't know that that existed. And then that was, uh, something that was handed over to a brand when you develop an identity for it. So I think exposing essentially like the culmination and the codification of that identity system in one document was uh, new to some people. And I think it's a really exciting um, component to look through like, wow, these are all the pieces that go together to create the brands that I'm very familiar with, you know, whether it's like FedEx or you know, UPS or, um, or, or a museum or MoMA, you know, and all of those have a toolkit of parts and pieces of design that need to be instructed, uh, to, you know, on how you put those together in order to communicate, um, you know, the, the sort of the brand and, and their, uh, and their mission and their communication. So, um, that's, that's the really sort of cool, uh, I think, aspects of, of where brand guidelines have gone to today. Mm-hmm. That was brilliant. Thank you for, uh, you know, explaining where it's originated from and, and what people are doing today. It's not something that I thought to ask about, but actually it's it's uh, useful for people to be aware of if, if they're not already. Yeah. Um, now, I, I do really want to ask you about your agency and your experience, but just before I move on to that, uh, with the manuals, out of curiosity, what are you working on today? Because I, I have recently purchased... Uh, or pre-ordered uh, what you're doing with NASA, which is really exciting. Are there any other exciting projects that you might want to uh, mention? <laughs> um, you know, I, I wish there uh, was, but I, you know, the the worm, which is the book you're referencing, um, you know, yeah, that yeah. <laughs> print, uh, I think last week or t- a couple weeks ago. And so now we're in the proofing stages of it and it's going to be on press um, with, within the week or so. And so, you know, we try to do one thing at a time. I think one year we did, uh, I guess like two or three books and we were just totally burnt out from it. So there's quite a lot that goes into it. And honestly, you know, it really is, uh, just myself and Hamish leading the project. And then we, we might bring on one designer to sort of help out with the production, but it's a very small team. And so there's a lot of heavy lifting that needs to be done sort of between all three of us. And so, you know, just on top of our day jobs, um, it gets quite uh, time consuming and exhausting. So, you know, we don't have anything um, sort of simmering at this moment. And, you know, we always have a couple of ideas, but, um, you know, I think where in you know, the, the, uh, the worm, that book is sort of a, an example of where the company has gone. You know, we're not really republishing or reproducing manuals that much anymore because i mean we sort of feel that the two or three that we've done are sort of the ones that um you know the biggest and sort of best ones that that we would want to do and ones and and, and the ones that have i think the 
the broadest audience of interest. Um, and that just sort of like set the standard for so many companies and, and design systems that came after them. Um, and I'm referencing the, the NYCTA as one, NASA as one, and then the EPA system as another. Um, so, you know, I don't know how many manuals will actually continue to reissue, but what is really exciting is that we get to do these other types of books like the Parks book or Chemayev and Geismar and Habib, you know, those sort of monograph and mm-hmm. then the, the Worm, which is essentially a photography uh, book. Um, so, you know, we'll look forward to doing some more, I guess, more traditional publishing in that sense or ones that have still a, a foundation in the, in the history of design. That's really what, you know, that, that's, so we have like a criteria for what books we would or wouldn't publish. And I think as long as they, um, include design history and, you know, more specifically graphic design. I think we wouldn't be opposed to other areas of design. Um, you know, who knows, maybe one day we'll do something in architecture or, or fashion design or interior design or product design. But um, right now there's nothing very juicy to uh, reveal, unfortunately, but um, we're very proud and excited for the worm to come out. So we'll, we'll let that happen. And then, um, see where things go. But that's the beauty of being a publisher and being an independent publisher is that we don't have anybody pressuring us to do another book. You know, maybe we'll ne- never do another book. Hopefully we, we will. But, um, you know, if we, if we didn't publish a book for the next two years, like to us, that's okay. We're not trying to meet a quota or we're not trying to force it. We're really just publishing the things that we want to uh, see be more accessible and, you know, uh, teach and, um, and that's sort of how we will, I think, continue to go about it. So sorry if that's uh, not as exciting answer as you. Uh, no, that, that was a really good answer. It's, it's actually quite inspiring to think that something like that can be created just by two or three people, uh, because you've, you've recreated quite a few of the manuals and you brought out quite a few books and, and to think that is just from, a couple of people that that are running their own agency as well I think it's amazing what you've done and and I actually think the approach is nice because as someone who likes to collect these books if you was to release three or four a year it, it kind of saturates it a little bit it's actually yeah. quite nice that you release one every year and drip it out slowly because you know that that uh the the NASA book I mentioned I don't think that comes out for a while yet, but I've seen it um, uh, promoted in in a number of places, and I thought, you know, I'm going to pre-order it. It looks amazing. I've uh, it's something I can buy now, and then I'll look forward to it coming out. What is it like November or something? Is quite a while away. Yeah. Um, but I think because you are releasing them quite slowly, it makes it. Uh, more accessible to be able to collect them all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, we're very, you know, transparency is a big thing. I think I've, I've said that word a couple of times and with our company, we always we really do like being transparent about our process and the way that we go about it and, you know, what you're getting or what you're not getting. And the reason um, why you won't get that book until later this year um, is because, you know, it is uh, a pre-order and we essentially created the book or the concept of the book very quickly. I mean, I would say within four weeks time from the day that we said, hey, we should do a book of these images celebrating the worm because NASA is bringing it back. And four weeks later, we had released it on our website on a pre-order. Um, there's no physical you know, book created yet, but 
Uh, it's very similar to the way that we did it through Kickstarter. Essentially, we're just doing it ourselves now um, because Kickstarter allows you to have an idea and then you know show uh, in some way or another what that idea is going to look like once it comes to fruition. Um, and then you ask people to uh, fund that idea. And then once it's funded, then you go and make it. And now we're just doing that ourselves. And so we're using our website as that platform. And the pre-orders, you know, we had it on pre-order for about a month. And then we knew how many, you know, copies uh, were, were purchased. And so then we know at least, you know, we need to make that many. And then we sort of anticipate that we want to have this, you know, throughout the year and for the holidays. And so we're able to, you know, invest some of that, um, you know, profit basically of what we made into purchasing more books so that it extends further. And um, it really is a model that has been working for us. And I think more and more independent publishers are probably using that model. Actually, just today um, on the order side of things where, you know, we've designed and we're helping to produce um, another book uh, that's related to in, in the music industry. And they are also launching a book on pre-order today and they're they're not going to place the print order for another two weeks and then um you know we'll see how many they sold and then they can sort of justify that print run without guessing you know before traditional publishers would just have to guess how many books they were going to sell and so if you thought you were going to sell ten thousand books and then you only end up selling Two thousand—that's a big issue, and um, you've wasted a lot of money. So, um, yeah. So that's the reason why we do pre-order, and that's how we sort of started this company, which was through Kickstarter and that sort of transparent uh, buying scenario um, from the consumer to um, what is delivered. Mm-hmm. It's good to know that as well. It's—I'm I'm glad that you've been transparent about it because actually pre-ordering it quite early on is supporting what you're doing and making sure that you can actually produce it and so on you know is a little bit like supporting a a kickstarter project and uh i wasn't aware that that was the way that it worked so um definitely the next time i see one that comes up that i really want i will be pre-ordering it early on as a way of supporting what you're doing so i think it's fantastic what what you are doing and like i've said so many times the the quality and attention to detail is superb and uh you've you've maintained that quality through everything that you've done so far thank you thank you so much i just want to take a really short break to mention the logo designers box set which is a set of six ebooks that i put together to help you through the logo design process it's totally free to download and it covers the tools you need uh, creating a logo design brief advice for coming up with ideas presenting logos creating files for your clients and finding your own clients too so you can download that for free just by heading to boxset.logogeek.uk now that is in exchange for your email address to sign you up to my newsletter so if you do want to be kept up to date with what's happening with the logo geek podcast and other things i'm doing around logo geek do head to boxset.logogeek.uk to download that and sign up so that is it let's get back to the interview I understand that you worked for probably one of the most famous identity graphic designers out there today, Michael Beirut, who hopefully everyone that's listening will be aware of. And 
I think that in itself is phenomenal <laughs> uh, to be able to work with someone of his uh, caliber. So how does one get the opportunity to work with Michael Beirut? <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. Uh, you know, that was an experience that I will, I will cherish forever. And um, it, you know, shapes who I am as a designer and, and a person uh, to this very day. So I, I you know, I and we, uh, Hamish and I definitely owe Michael quite a lot. And I think all the, all of the designers who have worked for him would say uh, a very similar uh, thing. Um, but you know, Michael and I have a, have an interesting uh, relationship, or I guess a history that's that's sort of similar. Um, and uh, what that means is that him and I both attended the same university, and so we both went to the University of Cincinnati in Ohio, um, uh, and they have a, an incredible design school. Um, for graphic design, industrial design, fashion, digital, architecture, um, uh, and, and arts. And so it's a, you know, very well-known design school. And, you know, admittedly, I only went there because it was an in-state school and uh, cheaper than going out of state. And I, you know, when I went to, when I uh, enrolled for college, I really had no idea what I wanted to do as a profession. I didn't originally uh go into uh, school for graphic design. I transferred at the end of my freshman year, but um, it was in my design classes that I first heard of Michael's name. And it was basically through our professors showing student work. And they would say, you know, this, this, this project was done by Michael Beirut, who is now a partner at a design firm called Pentagram. And I had no idea what Pentagram was. I didn't know what that meant. It didn't mean anything to me you know, when I first heard it. Um, and then you start to, dig a little deeper and then you see the amazing work that um, they have done and, and who they are. I mean, this is like me as a sophomore in college. So you know, I was aware of Michael's work in school. And I think uh, a couple of my professors mentioned that they thought, you know, someday I, I would probably uh, do well uh, at a place like Pentagram just because, you know, I, I sort of just wanted to do the work that Michael was doing or, or that looked like the way that Michael was designing so, and, you know, I was certainly inspired by, you know, people like uh, Joseph Mueller Brockman and Paul Rand and, uh, and Tomoko Miho and sort of, um, you know, all of those sort of figures and, you know, sort of that Swiss, Swiss international style. And um, uh, so, you know, very systematic thinking. And so one of my professors mentioned that, you know, one day I should get in touch with Michael and see if I could, you know, intern at Pentagram. And so actually on one of my internships uh, in Seattle, Washington, I was working at a, a firm called Cornell Anderson. And one of the partners there, uh, Lisa Cherveny, she worked for Michael, I think back when he was working for Massimo Vignelli and then transferred to Pentagram when he became a partner. But, you know, she essentially put me in touch with Michael's intern coordinator. Um, and, you know, I, she like loosely said like, oh, you know, would you want to intern for Pentagram? I said, yeah, sure. Like one day. And I didn't really think she was serious, but she did put me in touch. And I ended up getting an internship while I was still in school um, on Michael's team. And so, you know, I had a three month internship with him. And I don't think, you know, he, he he's so busy and has so many projects going on, so many designers. I don't know how much he really pays attention to you know, all the interns that come through. I mean, he pays attention to them, but there's so many, you can't really remember all of their names and 
uh, and I, I don't blame them. It's you know, it's, it'd be difficult for anybody. So I did that internship, and you know, got to work with him a few times. But I don't think you know, I left a, a big mark, um, you know, at that moment. And then uh, I guess fast forward to me graduating college, I moved to New York City. Uh, I had my first job was at. MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, working under Julia Hoffman on that team. And then a year and a half into it, um, I was sort of reintroduced to Michael um, through an AIGA event. And he let me know that there was a position open on his team and if I wanted to interview for it. Um, and, you know, it's funny because, of course, I wanted to interview for it. But again, if I'm being honest, I was only working at MoMA for a year and a half. And that was my very first job out of college. And I just sort of thought arbitrarily that you had to work at a place for more than two years. You know, if it was your first job, I, I don't know where I got that from. But so I had, I had this moment where I was like, well, I don't really know if I'm ready to leave my job. I actually really liked it. Moma was an amazing experience. But I said, I'll just go interview. Of course, I'm not going to pass that up and see what happens. Um, so I interviewed and then I left the interview thinking, okay, I, I want this job. Like now I've, I've made my decision. I really want it. And so, you know, I sent the follow-up email to Michael saying, thank you. And then I think that evening he emailed me and saying uh, that he, he would love to offer me the position. So I put in my two weeks notice and uh, that started my position with Michael. That's amazing. I bet you were so excited. <laughs> I mean, especially, you know, having learned about him uh, through school and so on, it, it must have been almost like getting your dream job at that point. And yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I, you know, I thought maybe when I was, you know, late, late in my career, you know, in my 40s or what, whatever age I wanted to make up that maybe one day I would work at Pentagram uh, and sort of like work my way up to it. But I was, I'm trying to think how old I was. I mean, I must have been 20, uh, 23 around that when I started at Pentagram. So I was very young. And that's actually, you know, I, I, I quickly learned that's pretty typical pentagram you know they have a lot of designers that come in there right after school or pretty early in their careers it's um you know it, it, it's a pretty standard thing and uh so yeah I, I never thought i would work there so early and then i, yeah, I ended up staying with michael for five and a half years uh, hamish was there for six years um so he he was an intern uh i guess while i was graduating or no while i was working at moma he was interning and then sort of rolled into the designer position uh sort of one after the the other um where i had a break so i interned went back to school finished up my last two quarters and then you know worked at moma and then came back to pentagram but every i would say every designer who at least on michael's team i'll only speak for him because every team is so different um everyone who becomes a designer I would say 95% of the time has interned with him previously. So it's very rare that someone gets hired, you know, right off the bat as a designer. It's truly sort of a, an easing in transition that you sort of intern, you make sure that you like it because uh, it's not for everyone. It is a very intense working environment. Um, and then if you're lucky, there's a seat that opens up. And if you're there at the right time, you can uh, sort of raise your hand and hope to get it. Mm -hmm. that's amazing and so what is it like working with someone like Michael Bayrou because I've seen him speak I, I've also seen uh, 
Paula Sharespeak, who who is a, another partner of the company. And I do remember Paula being quite firm when someone asked about working with her. She made it very clear that she is the person that makes the call on everything and you just need to do as you're told. She was quite firm about that in this uh, presentation she did or, or it, it was an answer to a question. Mm-hmm. Is it the same working with Michael? I mean, do you pretty much do exactly as as Michael says or do you have some input do you work together can you give us some insight into how that typically works at a company like Pentagram sure yeah so that's you know that um, example really I think paints the picture of Pentagram and how it's different from other agencies because Mm -hmm. as you know and I think many probably most of the people listening know that it's a partnership. So there's no owner of Pentagram. There's no CEO. There are partners that make up the company. And all of those partners are very different from one another. Um, it's a very personality-driven company, um, I guess, in, in my opinion. You, know, you, could, you could argue that. But I, you know, every partner has their own approach. They're different, a different personality, a different interest in design. And sort of they, they, they tend to do uh, sort of a body of work that is um, more focused on either editorial work or exhibition design or product design or identity design. And that's the beauty of Pentagram, you know, I think. So Paul is very different than Michael. And I think they would, they would both agree. And, you know, Michael's different than uh, Eddie Opara and different than Natasha Jen. And, uh, you know, the list goes on through all the partners. So they do, and they, they each run their teams independent from one another. So they, the, the structure and the process in which the designer will go through on any given team is almost black and white. Um, so you can't, you know, that's why I don't even generalize Pentagram because you can't generalize it as a company. You have to say who it was you were working under and which partner. So, um, I can only speak from my own experience and with Michael and I mean, listen, the sort of the general uh, sort of statement that I make is that it was the best and one of the best experiences of my life and working with him. Um, he became, uh, whether or not he wanted to or not, my my mentor. Um, I really looked up to him as a person and he really does shape you as a human being. Um, and then, of course, the way in which he handles uh, design and the relationship with other human beings, which is what we're doing. We're working with people. He really exposes the humanity of design. Um, and, you know, one of the lessons that I learned from him, one of many, was simply listening to uh, the other person on the other side of the table when you are asked to give your, you know, your, uh, your advice on, on design work. So you're hired by somewhat by somebody, they're trying to achieve something and they think that you can help them achieve that. And really your role in the very beginning of that process is to simply not talk and to just listen to them and, and hear what they have to say and what, you know, their goals are, what their pain points are. I mean, it's very similar. And I don't like this whole analogy for, for designers being like doctors, because I think uh, we're nowhere close to doing the work that doctors do. But in the sense of having a bedside manner and really understanding uh, the the human behind the organization or the brand, you know, which we're, we're designing for most of the time, that's really where um, the work uh, starts. And so, you know, he really taught me and I think everyone that 
if you listen enough, they, they will articulate what it is that they really want. And then it's your job to sort of observe that and then to reimagine or to interpret what that looks like visually because that's what they can't do. So he really taught me to listen um, first and design second. And I think I apply that uh, to this very day. And I try to also teach that to our designers working at order. Mm, that's that's fascinating. So when when you say about listening, I mean, that sounds obvious as an outsider that when a client comes to you, you need to, li- to listen to, to what they have to say. Is Michael asking any particular questions uh, to try and uh, uh, trigger them to d- describe what they're um, looking for or what they need? Is there is there like any extra little bit of nugget that that is there that could help people? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I mean, you know, what I'll say is that there is no list. There's not like a list of 10 questions that he always ran through. It really was different every time. And that's, that's sort of the beauty of it. Um, he's conversational. It's not like you are going into uh, some sort of interrogation and you have to get through the first five questions to unlock the next five questions. And only if you do that, will you get the result that you're looking for. Um, he treats every person and every client differently and I'm, I mean, you know, treats them with the same amount of respect and sort of understanding, but also, uh, you know, understands that every person is different, the situation is different, the industry is different. So it's not sort of a one size fits all approach. And um, I think that's what we took away from it in the way that I go about my own client interviews and the way that we sort of meet new people is that. I need to understand who you are first in order for me to even ask any questions um, and to understand your background and your history and why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, his clients are so diverse. You know, he'll work for a restaurant or a technology company or a school. Um, And that could be like a public school or it could be a university or it could be, I mean, you name it. It could be the MTA. It could be anyone. And so that diversity was the most exciting part of that job and what we are luckily sort of, you know, doing at order, we sort of found ourselves also having a diversity of work where, you know, right now I'm working on a, on an, on an identity for a yoga studio and then also um, an IT company and then also, uh, uh, you know, a, a college uh, in higher education. So all three of those, clients and those people and those groups of people are very different from one another. And the questions that I would ask one don't necessarily apply to the other. So it really is about trying to understand who those people are first and then getting into, you know, specific questions next. And then, you know, I'm sure he asked things like, if you were a car, what would you be? Or if you were, you know, a meal, what, what, what food would you be? Sort of like, sort of like weird zany questions like that that don't have a lot to do with design but sort of gets them thinking visually to some degree that they might not have practiced doing you know if you ask someone to say what typeface are you most people who aren't designers won't know how to answer that so you have to ask them something that relates to them um so you know you have to again like if you're working with a yoga studio you have to relate that 
to some sort of, you know, aspect of yoga or mindful practice or whatever it might be for them to start speaking about themselves and the way that their company is uh, sort of be, being run. And then we also, I don't think Michael asked this too much, but we're really fascinated by the business aspect of our clients. Like we'd like to know how do they make money? Like what is their business model or, you know, how do they reach people? Um, what are sort of like the the approaches that they take in communicating? So it's not it's 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 like every and you know this has been said many times before, but design is about everything that's not design. So you ask the questions that are not design related, and that should influence um, you know what the work that you will be doing, uh, you know the outcome of that work. That's absolutely fascinating. I think that's one thing that really sets apart graphic designers that are really. Uh, really succeeding out there they are asking questions and truly understanding uh what the problem is and and uh, working in that way i think that that's you know one of the things i've learned by speaking to lots of different designers um is asking questions and listening um so i think that's a really fascinating insight i'd love to ask more questions about michael but We've got, what, 10 minutes left, and I want to hear your side of the story. Um, so in 2017, you left Pentagram and you started your own agency, which you mentioned earlier, uh, which is Order. So you mentioned that this was your dream job. You know, you was doing something amazing, working with Michael Beirut. That was an incredible experience for you. What's the reason why you left that to start your own business? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, another very valid question and one that, that people, you know, often wonder, um, particularly coming from a place like that. And as a designer, it's like, why would you ever leave? But, um, you know, Hamish and I had been there, like I said, for about five and a half, six years. Uh, we had come from interns to designers to associate partners, which, um, from a, a role perspective, that's sort of the highest um, you can go to at Pentagram um, if, if you're not a partner. Um, and that was amazing. And I think, you know, we were very fortunate and, uh, you know, really respected that position and that title to be an associate partner. Um, and I'll sort of answer a question that you asked that I didn't really answer, but that leads into, you know, this general answer. Mm -hmm. Michael, working with him, I, you know, from what you said about Paula um, and how she sort of had the, the response of, you know, she's the one in charge and you as the designer just should listen and do as you're told. Michael had a, a very different approach. Um, he gave you almost full autonomy uh, over time when you were working with clients. And so, you know, three, four years into working with him, we were running projects uh, more or less, you know, independently um, as, as a designer. And I guess another thing that I should clarify is that on his team, you don't work with the other designers. Uh, the structure is that Michael is the partner and he, you know, brings in new clients and he sort of drives the, the general maybe uh, overarching approach and, uh, you know, the direct sort of communication with the client. And then he assigns one designer to that job. And it is your sole responsibility to see that project through from the very beginning to the very end. Um, so you don't work as a team. Um, and that's a very different way of working that I think most people are used to. 
Um, it is stressful in the beginning, but then over time, you start to really love uh, the ownership that you get by working that way. And so it's really you and Michael thinking and working together through that entire process. And so, you know, this leads me to say that because he did that so often and gave you such trust and responsibility. And until you seriously messed up, which, you know, you were terrified of ever doing, um, you, you were acting uh, as a, as sort of a lone designer and always with his support. And, you know, you, you could show him things all the time. And a lot of the times um, he would just be like, yeah, just, you know, this is great. Run with it. He just really trusted you as a designer if he was hiring you on his team. So, you know, almost to his fault or the detriment of of his of his team, uh, because of that independence and autonomy that you get over time, um, you know, you really feel this this confidence to be making decision decisions on your own and to um, work with clients directly, speak with them directly, um, and sort of you know go through that entire process without sort of having someone looking over your shoulder, which he did not do. And again, it's like it was an incredible amount of uh, pressure to have that trust and responsibility. So five and a half, six years into it, we felt that man, you know, if we're, there was ever a moment that we could do this on our own and sort of prove to ourselves that we could do this, you know, uh, sort of outside of the wing of Michael, um, it felt, it was just like a gut feeling. It felt like this was the right moment. Um, Hamish and I had been running standards manual at that point for, let's see, two, two three years. Um, so we had that company together and that him and I, we really saw that we ran a business very well together. We made business decisions uh, very quickly and um, very sort of unanimously together. Um, we never, you know, I mean, everyone argues, but we sort of worked very seamlessly together from a business point of view. So, um, and, you know, that side, that company, which had become a company, we had, we had released, I think, two or three books at that point. Um, it was more than just a side project and it was taking up our nights and weekends and like it was getting sort of bigger than we thought it was going to be. So we had standards manual. We had a few clients that we were probably, you know, exhausted of, you know, working with at, at Pentagram and, you know, they were all amazing, but, you know, you just at a certain point uh, want to see what else is out there. And so we thought, let's just do this. We were both, you know, 29, 30 years old. Um, and we said, this is probably the right moment. So Hamish was the first one to say, you know, he's thinking of leaving. And, you know, I'll just tell you that really, I'll try to keep this brief, but the sort of uh, the um, seed of how orders started was that Hamish mentioned, you know, after the MasterCard uh, identity rebrand, which he led and did um, with Michael, um, once once that was going to launch, he was going to leave Pentagram. Um, and so once he said that, I said, oh, man, well, you know, I could probably leave sometime soon thereafter uh, myself. And so we had this conversation at breakfast one morning. We were speaking at a conference in Atlanta and we were at you know breakfast having this conversation. He said he was going to leave. I sort of said, oh, I guess, you know, I, I, I probably could too. Then we said, well, let's do standards manual full time and let's do an agency as well. And so we thought of the name very quickly. Um, and then we registered the domain, uh, which was available. And then we got email addresses. And this was all within a 60-minute period of time. <laughs> um, and I'm really not 
exaggerating at all. Uh, and then later that day, we sort of walked to a, a bar and we just got a couple beers and we sketched out the logo and we like did all the things, which really is exactly the way that our, our company brand looks like today. I have like the piece of paper. I still saved it of, of what that looks like. And so it was really, you know, it came to fruition that day and within that hour very quickly. Um, and, you know, without sort of, uh, Dra- you know, drawing this on too long. Um, when we left Pentagram, uh, we felt ready and we felt that we had learned so much from Michael and from our experience at Pentagram um, that uh, we felt like we could, you know, try to do this on our own. And, and we definitely carry over a lot of the same practices and principles um, that we learned specifically from Michael. Um, and again, not like generalizing Pentagram, but specifically from him um, on how we manage a team and how we work with our clients. And um, and that's where we are today. That's a phenomenal story. I love how quickly you created everything. You know, just just a quick conversation and, and register in that domain. It's, it's a really incredible story. But I, I think in terms of our time for our interview, uh, we're, we're pretty much up. I'd, I'd love to keep asking question after question, but um, maybe we'll save that for a later date. But that was absolutely incredible. Thank you for sharing the the story of standards manual, uh, your experience with Michael, and then obviously your own agency as well. I, I think it's uh, it's been an absolutely fantastic episode. So thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, let myself and Jesse know by giving us a shout out on social media. I always love to hear from listeners of the show. So if you've enjoyed it, or if you've enjoyed any previous episodes, reach out, let me know. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. Now, if you want to learn more about Jesse Reed, you can head to a number of his websites. So his agency order is at order.design standards manual is at standardsmanual.com and uh, jesse's personal website is jessereedfromohio.com alternatively i'll link to all of that in the show notes along with links to any books or information that we might have mentioned as well so to find the show notes for this week's episode head to logogeek.uk forward slash 93. In the show notes, you'll also find a full transcription of the interview too. So if you want to skim back through anything, uh, you can do that with the transcription. So again, the show notes can be found at logogeek.uk forward slash 93. Now, if you're keen to discuss anything we mentioned in this podcast with me and almost 10,000 logo designers from around the world, you need to join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. It's a free community to join and it's very active. So any questions you have, any feedback that you want or any support that you need, you'll be able to find that in the Logo Geek community. So to find that, just head to logogeek.com dot uk forward slash community or if you're on facebook already just search for the logo geek community and hopefully you will find it now if you have been enjoying the podcast one way that you can help to support me is to write a review on itunes so if you do have a moment to do that it will be very much appreciated and that will hopefully 
help me reach a few more listeners too. So that is it for this week, but I'll see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast.